Um, and I want to start out tonight, before we get into our Bible study, with a little bit of a Mother's Day tribute. Um, normally in our service, we get to acknowledge our moms and, uh, and, and say, you know, uh, make everybody feel good and, and feel honored. Uh, we wish we could do that today. So we'll try our best in, in the stream. Um, if you look at our, on our page, you'll see that we made a post earlier um, encouraging anybody and everybody, uh, church member or not, to uh, uh, go on our page and, and just share your mom's name, maybe even a picture of you and your mom, just to, for us to kind of celebrate you and your, and your family um, in, in absence of being able to do it together. But we did uh, have a good time this morning at our drive-in service. Um, glad to be able to gather in the limited fashion that we are able to right now. Hopefully we'll be back in our building soon, but until then, um, the body of Christ is going to continue to press on and we're going to continue to be um, uh, you know, seeking the Lord and, and, and worshiping Him and, and God's going to continue to give us what we need. And we trust that uh, no matter what stage we step up onto in life, no, no matter what stage of life we're in, whether we're happy with it or not, we can believe and trust that God is actually going to do something, um, bring something good from even the, uh, the, the most unexpected and unassuming of, of starting places. So we, we trust that this season is no different, that God's got big plans. Um, but uh, on Mother's Day, we often hear and read from Proverbs 31. Um, most of you probably can quote the scripture by heart. Um, and, and Proverbs is most notable uh, because Solomon is sharing wisdom with his, his audience, with us, um, that was passed on to him by his, from his father, David. Um, and what makes chapter 31 unique is that uh, Solomon says, I'm not sharing instruction given to me by my father this time. I'm sharing you some things that were given to me by my mother, um, which is very unique. Um, Solomon uses a pseudonym um, in this proverb. He refers to himself as King Lemuel, um, which uh, means belonging to God. Uh, most likely it was just another name that Solomon went by. Um, Solomon, uh, uh, is, is important to note here that he gives wisdom, uh, passed on by his mother about finding a godly wife and honoring her. Um, Solomon, of course, didn't really take that advice. Um, he is, uh, remembered, um, infamously for his infidelity and, and, and for just, uh, you know, he practiced do what, do as I say, but not as I do. Right. Um, but nonetheless, the wisdom is still inspired and regardless of his own obedience, we still follow God's word and, and, and ultimately, um, God's word gets the last word, um, it, uh, over Solomon's life even. Um, but at the end of the passage, Solomon breaks down from his mother's instruction uh, to give his mother a fitting tribute. So after he's talked about what his mom told him a godly woman should look like and live like and be like, here's how Solomon summarizes um, those thoughts and, and those ideas. Proverbs 31 verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel or exceed them all. Solomon gives his mother a special shout out here and says that she was, uh, was greater um, than any other uh, woman, any other mom. And of course, um, you know, men and women are created equally um, and, and, and equally loved by God, but each gender possesses uh, gifts and purposes that are unique from one another. Um, conservative biblical Christian theology refers to this idea and this concept as um, complementarianism. Um, this champions the, the idea that men and women um, have different but complementary gifts in marriage, in family life, even in church roles and leadership. Uh, this, of course, is about celebrating the uniqueness and the colorful qualities that God has given each distinct gender. And, and women, not exclusively mothers, but women, uh, of course, including our moms, have a gift that is unrivaled when it comes to their gift of grace, their passion to nurture and care, their rationale and their earnestness uh, makes us men look uh, pretty bad on most occasions. Uh, God chose to use women as the template 
for his church, the vessel for whom Christ died and, and is ever pouring himself out for. Um, God refers to the church as the bride of Christ. Uh, and he uses this, I think, because of the inherent value that all women have uh, that needs never to be underscored, especially in our day and time today, uh, needs never to be underscored, and uh, in, in, in obviously for their persistent devotion to love and to care. Um, so to all our moms, to all of our ladies, those who hurt today even um, because of maybe lost loved ones, uh, those who struggle uh, because of uh, infertility, um, you are so very special, every single one of you. You're very chosen and you're very important. Um, we're all better because of you, and we love you. Um, to my wife, Lindsay, uh, to my mom, my sisters, my grandmother, and my in-laws um, who bear these same wreaths of brilliance, thank you so much for being you. And again, we are better. I am better because of you. Now, for the remainder of our time tonight, we're going to spend a little time um, talking about Bible prophecy. Now, last time we took a first step in this study and on this journey, um, th there are so many layers to this study and uh, uh, so many necessary conversations uh, that we've got to have. And, and I know when you think and you hear Bible prophecy, you think about things like the end times, you think about things like the rapture, the tribulation, the antichrist, the second coming, and all the different theories and possible um, realities. And, and, and we'll get to all those sooner than later. Um, so be patient uh, with me if you can. Uh, there's a lot to cover and to establish and understand up front. I, I think once we get through the pillars of this study um, and lay a foundation, uh, we'll see that most of the, the more popular subjects, uh, we'll see how they fit in and they'll make more sense and we'll understand why they happen or might happen the way we suspect they will. So uh, we began this study with a conversation around Israel. Um, and the reason why is because Israel um, really is at the center and at the center of the prophetic timeline, at the center of this study, and I said last time that the prophetic temperature is gauged by the status and the season that Israel is in. And so last time we started in this direction looking at Jesus' own words on the subject. Because Jesus is our cornerstone, we run everything through him, and he gives meaning and direction to all of our ideas and all of the scriptures. And the reason, honestly, that I take this conversation seriously and that you should take this conversation seriously about the end times and about the Bible's word about our future is because Jesus talked about the last days more than any other subject. Uh, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God and what we were headed towards and how we all were going to face that reality more than anything else. So that's why we should care about the subject of Bible prophecy. We talked about two other things though. Um, how does this subject impact us, and when will these things take place? Because we all want to know, well, what's in it for me, or how does it affect me? And we obviously want to know, well, when is this going to happen, and is it something I need to worry about or, or, or think about? Um, the how, um, the how is this going to impact us? Uh, well, it's, we're all headed toward a destination. Um, we're all headed towards eternity, and whether we pass away or live into the end of days, the complete picture involves us. So clearly, this matter, uh, this, this should matter to us. And, and, and the when, well, you know, that's a perennial question um, that's been on everybody's mind since forever. Um, as long as there's been a promise of redemption since Genesis 3, as long as there's been a promise of redemption, there's been the question, when will this redemption come? So Jesus, of course, was asked this question a lot. 
And uh, because the Jews believed that when the Messiah would come, he would bring a kingdom and build a kingdom and, and restore Israel to its former glory and even a greater glory than it had ever seen before. And, and last time, we looked at Jesus' words on this subject in Luke 21. Um, they also are found, um, this ver- different version of this message is found in Matthew 24, Mark 13. Jesus talked about the immediate future looking pretty grim for Israel when they asked him, hey, when are these things going to happen and when is the end going to come? So Jesus kind of puts in context and frames this conversation around Israel's future. And he says, hey, immediately, Israel, your future does not look good. The nation was about to reject him. And the nation would inevitably um, you know, fall away in, in a religious way, but also in a physical way. And, and, and now many of the Jews had and would believe in him. This wasn't about the Jewish people, but the nation of Israel um, was going to take a, a break from the center of God's earthly activity. The nation of Israel was going to be, um, be replaced at, in terms of how God was involved, interacting with the world and how God was working in midst of the world for a long time, forever. It had been Israel. That was the way he interacted with the world. But Jesus uh, you know, kind of teased out a future where Israel's story would be kind of paused. And as God would turn his attention toward the Gentiles... now. Of course, history proves Jesus' predictions very true. Um, Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, and Judaism, as it is ascribed in the Old Testament, um, ceases to function, and and the religion really ceases um, to exist in 70 AD. Yet Jesus promised there was more to Israel's story. The verses we closed uh, closed with last week and teased out last week um, was Luke 21, verse 24. And here's what Jesus said, if you remember. Um, regarding the the future of Israel. Um, Many will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So as this, there was this kind of uh, this new age that was upon the world where Israel was, was no longer the center of God's activity, but God was moving on and going to do some things in and around, around Israel, um, obviously with a, with a future in sight for Israel. Um, Jesus also said back in Luke 13, um, he was lamenting over Jerusalem and he said, I leave you desolate. I say to you, you shall not see me, literally himself, until the time comes when you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus looked forward to a day when Israel uh, would, would uh, correct this grave mistake they were about to make, where the nation as a whole would acknowledge that he was indeed the Messiah, um, but they were about to reject him. So that leaves us with this clear picture that Israel is such an important factor in the conversation about the end times. So if we're just talking the words of Jesus, uh, you know, obviously we, we should pay attention to that. So maybe though, maybe though you have a few other questions, um, and I'm sure you do. Um, why do things hinge around Israel? I mean, aside from the fact that Jesus said so, why is Israel so important? Um, and maybe you're wondering, how then does this come back to impact me? I mean, you know, what is the church's role in all of this? We haven't even talked about that yet, right? Um, well, I think the best way for us to walk through this is to talk about Israel, um, why the nation's role is so crucial and at the center of this subject, and how all this wraps back around to impact us. So we've established that Jesus in the Bible places Israel at the center. Yes, but why are they at the center? 
Well, I want to look at Romans 11 tonight. Uh, Romans 11 may not be the most famous or read chapter in Romans, probably the least famous and least read chapter in Romans, actually. Um, Romans is such a, uh, an awesome book that deals with Christian doctrine and, and practical living based on our Christian beliefs. Um, uh, all but this chapter really deals with these very practical um, Christian uh, ideas. Um, but chapter 11... Um, really kind of is, is, is kind of a, a encapsulated to itself as it talks about eschatology and it talks about how Israel um, still has a place in God's prophetic timeline. And, and as God is dealing with the church, Paul kind of breaks uh, from, from character and talks about how uh, he longs for Israel to be saved as he, God is doing this work through the church. And of course, he is, begins to talk about how God is indeed going to do a, a, a saving work through and for the nation of Israel. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read a few verses at a time, and I'll give you a short explanation of what Paul is getting at. And then we're going to map this out the best that we can and talk about big picture where this is all going. So Romans 11, uh, let's read verses 1 through 10 first. I say then, has God cast away his people, the Jews? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But does the divine response say to him, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal? So this idea that when it seemed as if Israel was turning away, God always knew there was a remnant and a future for them. And even so then, Paul says, as this pre at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. He refers to the Jews who had put their faith in Jesus. The disciples, most of them were Jewish, right? The early church, most of it was Jewish. But he refers to that, those who have come to God through the grace of Jesus. And if by grace, then it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has, obtained, has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest are blind. So he makes a distinction between the Jewish Christians and the rest of the nation, Israel as a nation, um, as a whole. And again, Old Testament dealt with Israel as a nation, not just the individuals, but the collective body, the people, or the collective nation um, this, the, 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 that all were under the king and under God's rule. So Paul makes a distinction that there is still a purpose for the nation of Israel in terms of how it interacts with the rest of the nations of the world. He says, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see, ears that should not hear, to this very day, as if their rejection of Jesus was necessary to bring the Gentiles in, but they would not reject him forever. Let, them, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down, bow down their back away, always. So he refers to how the Jews rejected Jesus. And Israel as a nation turned away, but many Jews trusted in Jesus. And of course, through the church, through them, the church was started and established. But then he goes on to talk about the future, verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles, speaking of what God was doing through the church. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, as if there was a future for them. For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Speaking in this era of the church, that God would still be reaching Jews as he reaches Gentiles with the message of Jesus. But again, the nation of Israel has a place, has a role in the future of the world. Verse 15. 
For if being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if, uh, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So Paul's talking about how it's important the church not forget Israel's importance and Israel's future importance uh, all the more. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fail, severity but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. Speaking of the church and those who are just superficial members of the church, just, being a, just belonging to the church does not save you, just like belonging to Israel didn't save you. But God's still working through these houses and the activity, the center of his activity in today's world is the church. That's how he gets his word out, gets his message out. But once again in the future, it will be Israel. And that's the importance, that's the, the message Paul is sending here. They also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, uses this analogy of trees, right? How much more will these who are a natural branch be grafted into their own tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part was happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So it was necessary that Israel as a nation fall away and reject, not that the Jews themselves were, were, reject, were, turn, were uh, cut off, but the nation fell away. It was destroyed even. So the church might establish dominance in, 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 in a place in the world. But Paul says this will come to a time of fulfillment and God will bring Israel back. And so Israel will be saved as it is written. Deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So the nation has a place in the future of this world. It's undeniable. We can't turn away from that. So there's this clear promise that there will be a conclusion to the age of the Gentiles' domination, the focus that God has given to the Gentile nations through which the church has bloomed and grown and, and, and spread its influence. The age of the church's expansion will cease, and a return to Israel's story, a conclusion to Israel's story will come. Maybe you're curious, why though? Like, why the special attention given to Israel? Maybe you know, but maybe you don't, and it's important we talk about it. Verse 27 alludes to it, God made a covenant with Israel, which he intends to keep. And here's the thing that we can't ignore. Our faith, our salvation comes from Israel, from God's covenant with the Jewish nation. And yes, what he started there was always meant to spread to the whole earth. God still remains committed to Israel, though, if only to keep his original promise in tune with his character and also to make an example out of them to show his glory to the whole world and the rest of the nations that think they are in charge. There are so many passages in the Old Testament that are quite honestly difficult for Christian preachers to do much with in terms of spiritual application because most of the Old Testament prophets deal literally with God's promise to Israel as a nation and his future plan for Israel, the nation. Yes, we can take some solace knowing that we fit into his plans, but we can't spiritualize these stories to the point that we miss what they literally and mostly refer to. God's promise to Israel and his plans for Israel in the future of this world. 
by which he will make known to the nations and all people into the history books that he has always been sovereign over over the kingdoms of man. When the story of this age and of this earth ends, Israel will be on top, proving that God and his little nation were always in control. This will lead to a transition from heaven to earth, to an eternal state, to the kingdom of God, and yes, to a multinational, multi-ethnic, a new and better Israel, a chosen people, but spiritually. But as far as this literal earth goes, God has a plan. Israel still plays a key role, and a picture of a greater kingdom to come will be uh, portrayed through what God is going to do through Israel, all because God made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12. Now, the background of this covenant is the whole world had rejected God. Genesis 10 and 11 tells the story of the nation spreading and advancing in rejection of God, in rejection of what God had done through Noah and through the flood. The whole earth um, walks away and the kingdoms of man begin to build up in their separate corners of the world. Um, Yes, God sees this and yet God sees this and on the chessboard that he controls, ultimately, he chooses a pawn among kings and queens and knights and decides to use this pawn to establish his own nation through which he would assert his ownership over the rest of the world. So the reason why there is a future place for Israel at the center of God's plan and the center of this planet is because of the promise God made to Abraham and his commitment to his earthly goal. Now, I've got to make a distinction here. God's covenant with Abraham is different and greater than his covenant with Moses. You've heard of the Mosaic covenant. That's the old covenant we refer to, the Old Testament. The covenant with Moses was to govern the consciousness of Israel until a Savior could redeem and restore their souls. The Mosaic covenant was temporary. Because our sins are forgiven in Christ, not sacrifices that we make at a temple or an altar. Our hearts are changed by Jesus, not laws. But God's covenant with Abraham is forever. It's a picture of how we are all saved, a picture of God's faithfulness to his own, continually seen in his faithfulness to Abraham and Abraham's people. You'll recall this scripture from Genesis 12. The Lord calls to Abram out of nowhere and says, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That's a promise that God makes to Abraham that was not temporary. It was forever. Now, I don't need to explain how popular Abraham is, how the, most of the world knows who Abraham is. His name is greater than we could ever, he could ever have imagined it to be. God makes a promise that his descendants would be as the sands of the seas and the stars of the sky. Of course, that has been fulfilled and that is true. Israel has been at the center of the world's story over and over again. When it seems they're down, they continue to rise up. That's not accidental. That's not coincidental. That is providential. God made a promise to Abraham. And he intends to keep it. Now, of course, Abraham put faith in this promise. Later on in Genesis 15, when Abraham is worried about God's providing him a son, he says, God, I've only got a servant um, in my household that's my heir. When are you going to give me the son that you promised, much less the nation, right? Abraham says, look, you've, only, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him in Genesis 15, This one, he says, will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and he said, look toward the heavens. Count the stars if you are able to number them, because that's impossible. He said, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord. He trusted God's word. Abraham believed and God counted it to him as righteousness. 
This is really the beginning of the Christian faith. God gave a righteous standing to Abraham based on Abraham's trust in God's word, trust in God's promises. God made a promise and Abraham believed that God was able to do what he promised. That's the basis for the Christian faith. We trust God's word. Of course, we've got the full word. Abraham just had a small, small part of it, but the basis is still the same. Now, after this, though, God sealed the covenant, the promise with a sacrifice, with blood. God tells Abraham to lay sacrifices out and cut them in half. And this was customary in the ancient world where covenants were like contracts, where instead of shaking hands, two parties would, would, would come together and would cut a covenant by sacrificing animals. And what they would do in cutting a covenant, they would walk between the, the animals and they would seal the promise like so. And they would say, let it be done to me as it was to these animals if I don't keep my part of the deal. But the story goes that God puts Abraham to sleep. And the story goes that it came to pass when the sun went down, it was dark, and behold, there was appeared smoke. There appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. But Abraham remained asleep. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. As in, God promised Abram. Abram didn't walk through the animals, but God did, as God made an unconditional permanent promise to Abram that he would always be there. He would always abide by with him and would always defend and protect his people, the Israelites, the nation of Israel. So really the Abrahamic covenant points to Christianity. Romans and Galatians, Paul extrapolates from Abraham um, to, to really build up what we believe and how we believe. And he, and, and he says in Romans 4 that Abraham is the father of our faith, um, believing um, in what God um, said. It was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him and also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. So we have the full picture. But you got to ask the question here. Does this mean that God's promise to Abraham, to Israel, was just replaced too? Um, since Abraham's faith, you know, was, was partial in, in God's plan, we know the whole story. So was Abraham just another stepping stone? Did God's promise to Abraham and the nation of Israel cease when God established the church? And the answer is absolutely not. That would conflict with the character of God. And more importantly, God has a purpose for this earth. God moves with the kingdoms of this earth, and his nation, Israel, is going to be the way he, can, he kind of concludes this earth story and, and, and connects earth to heaven in the future um, and, and to eternity. So Israel remains important. God's promises remain intact for the reasons we've already discussed. And that's why Paul, later on in Romans 11, makes sure, makes sure to address this. Yes, the new covenant presents God's, uh, um, presents God's unconditional promise to the whole world, but there remains unfinished business. There remains unfinished business um, when it comes to God's promise to Israel. Here's the thing. Israel's rejection of Jesus, again, was almost necessary to widen the doors for the Gentiles. For that reason alone, there remains a season dedicated for Israel to come back as a whole and as a nation and for Israel to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. The whole world will hear it from their lips. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, when the fullness of this age of the Gentiles has come, God will refocus his global attention around Israel. Israel. Now, we believe God is sovereign, right? And this is the natural place for God, for people who believe God is sovereign to, to step into, understanding that God moves through the kingdoms of man. And he has pushed forth the agenda and, and, and the, um, you know, the movement of all the nations of the earth over the last 2,000 years. 
But one day, the Gentile day will be fulfilled. And before we quit, I want to talk about how we can know and if we can know when the time to the Gentiles has been fulfilled or if there is some way we can chart this out. Um, to do so, we're going to talk a little bit about Daniel. Now, Daniel was a prophet during Israel's 70-year captivity under Babylon. And if you've ever read Daniel, Daniel gets special revelation concerning the future of the whole world, specifically to assure Daniel and to use Daniel to assure other Jews that God was not done with Israel because Israel ceased to exist in 587 B.C. when, God, when the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians wiped them off the map and enslaved them. Daniel saw visions of the Gentile kingdoms that would, from that point on, rule the world. He saw a vision of Babylon. He saw a vision of Persia. He saw a vision of Greece, and it was confirmed to him. These names, these nations are mentioned, um, not just symbolically or metaphorically, but their names. Per Babylon, of course, that was the kingdom that ruled in Daniel's day. Persia was going to be ruling very soon. Greece was already building its kingdom uh, uh, in the west. But Daniel also sees a kingdom that would come after Greece a nondescript kingdom that would conquer in, in, in the divided earth that Greek, the Greek empire left. And of course, that has to be the Roman Empire. Now, there are visions of beasts and tons of cool stuff you can read in Daniel um, chapter 4 and, and, and to the end of the book. We even read about how Rome essentially sets up what the world will look like until the last days. After this, of course, Daniel intensely intercedes to God because this is not a good, good news for the Jews or not really uh, uh, encouraging for the Jewish people because there's no future, apparently, uh, for Israel. And they begin to pray, how do we fit into your plans? Daniel begins to intercede for Israel. How do we fit into your plan, into the earth's plans for the rest of time? Uh, because it seems they're going to be overrun forever. And if that's so, what about all the covenants, that, the covenant God had made? What about all the promises God had made and all the prophets that God had spoke through? So Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, is where God speaks to Daniel specifically about this. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God, so he was praying specifically about, hey, how does Israel fit into your plans? Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening uh, offering. He informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Daniel, I've come to, to, to address your concerns. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you that you are greatly beloved, therefore Consider the matter and understand the vision. So Daniel, you and all your brothers and sisters, all the Jewish people are beloved under a covenant of God. So God has a special word to give you about your future. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy one. So, Daniel receives a word that God has 70, let me interject here, the word week there is really a difficult word to translate, um, but it doesn't mean 70 literal weeks, otherwise 70 weeks after Daniel heard this, there would have been no world, right, or things would have been ended, we wouldn't be here, the kingdom of God would have been established a long time ago, but the word week there is the Hebrew word Shabuah that is connected to the word Sabbath because of the, the seven idea, the word week there is a Hebrew word that means a group of seven, so kind of like how couple or couplet means a group of two, or few means a group of three, etc. The word week there, the Hebrew word, Shabuah, refers to a group of seven. So literally, Daniel uh, hears 
that here's would have heard 77s are determined for you and for your people for the nation of Israel. Now, again, most scholars believe this refers to 77-year periods laid out for Israel to be the center of God's earthly activity. Very specific, but God would know, right? So we can trust that he knows what he was talking about. So let's follow this through. Verse 25 begins to explain these 77-year periods. Know therefore and understand that from going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, that these 70 weeks begin when you are sent back to the land to restore and build up to reestablish Jerusalem under Cyrus's command, uh, the king of Persia. Seventy weeks, uh, or know it therefore, understand that from going forth of the command uh, to restore and build up Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So specifically, there are going to be seven seven-year periods and 62 seven-year periods altogether. That's 69 seven-year periods from the day you go back to the land until the Messiah comes into, or until this time of understanding the Messiah has come. Now, what could that refer to? 77s would refer to 49 years. It took Nehemiah and his group 49 years to rebuild the temple. Um, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, when they were sent back to rebuild the land and rebuild the walls and, and, and rebuild the temple, it took them 49 years to rebuild. So that's seven seven-year periods. And from the, re, uh, from the, the, the um, re-commission or the kind of re-dedication of the temple under Nehemiah, Ezra, and those guys, it was 434 years from completion of the, of the rebuilt Jerusalem under Nehemiah, 433 years from the completion to Palm Sunday. So there are your 62, 62 times, 62 times 7, 434 years from the completion of the temple under Nehemiah, under Zerubbabel, to Palm Sunday. 30 AD, Palm Sunday, on which the Messiah is paraded into town and Israel rejects him and they begin plotting to kill him. Verse 26. After 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, the people, the Romans, the prince who is to come, we'll talk about that, but the Romans come and crucify Jesus after Israel rejects Jesus. And as Jesus said in Luke 21, the city was cut off and destroyed in the aftermath of their rejection, in the aftermath of Jesus' crucifixion, and as the church began to build up. Verse 26 teases out that this was not the end, though. It was just a pause. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The Roman Empire destroyed the city and the sanctuary, 70 AD. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he the people of the prince who is to come refers to a prince that will come in the latter days or at the end of this 70-year period. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. In the middle of the week, he'll bring an end to sacrifice. And on the wing of the abominations shall, he, shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So there's a time jump here, though, because 69, the 69th seven ended at Palm Sunday. Then the times of the Gentiles began. But 27 tells us there's still one more seven-year period left on the, on the books. When is that seven-year period going to take place? It hasn't yet, but it will in the future. And this prince, this 
Antichrist, this leader of this revived Roman Empire of some sorts, in the spirit of the Roman Empire. When the time the Gentiles are fulfilled, this last year period will start and Israel's story will finally be finished. We know it wasn't possible before 1948, but from then on it's been game on because Israel is back on the map after being gone for 2,000 years as a result of them rejecting Jesus. Now, the seven-year period will be, one of the world, will be one of a worldwide struggle between Israel and the kingdoms of the world. Daniel refers to this lawless man who comes to unite the world in the spirit of the Roman Empire, attempting to make peace with Israel, but eventually leading to a conflict with Israel. These seven year, this seven-year period, these seven years, will be a time of great trouble, a time of judgment and purification for the whole earth. But the conclusion will be one of glorious victory for Israel and for God. And that's what God promised Daniel, that at the end of these 70 weeks, Israel's going to be on top. Israel's going to have dominance over the whole world because of what God is going to do for and through them. But before Israel's story can restart, what about the church? How do we fit into this? Well, of course, there's more to that. And we'll do that have that conversation next time as we talk about what stands between the age, this age and the one to come and why it could happen anytime. What has to happen to start this last seven-year period? There's a, there's a t- message there, a tease about a prince making a, a, a treaty um, with the world in Israel. What does that mean? We'll get to that in a few weeks. Uh, but until then, we look up, for our redemption is drawing near. All the signs have been shown, all the prophecies have been fulfilled for this last seven-year period of God's plan for Israel to unfold. Whatever is next in his plan, however we fit into that, we must be ready because it's closer than it's ever been. And there's way more we've got to talk about. So all this fits together and clicks together as God's word puts together this picture of the last days, this picture of our future. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and for your truth. Thank you for showing us a slight preview of things to come. Until then, help us to make the most of the things that are. Your promises and our purpose to exalt Jesus to the ends of the earth, to praise you for your infinite worth. We are on a mission to spread your glory. May we finish this mission. May we be ready for the day when you call us home, the day when this earth will be finally restored, the day when all will know there has always been one God, the God of Abraham the God who became one of us and died for all of us. It's in his mighty name, the name of Jesus, that we ask and pray all these things and pray even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen.